This is Restless. Welcome back to Restless, the postmortem on the young, restless, and reformed. I am your host, Matt Klein. I am happy to be here. I am joined by Pastor Michael. Also happy to be here. And we are joined by a third guest today, Andrew Smith, co-host of the Bobcast and a pastoral intern at Redeemer United Reformed Church in Anchorage, Alaska. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks, guys. It's good to be here with you. You're officially our first guest to uh, join us from Alaska. Yeah, I suppose that's pretty likely. It's (laughs) (laughs) Tell us a little about your podcast, yourself. Yeah, so we... I co-host Bobcast with Caleb Castro, who's a friend of mine. He's a student at Mid-America Reform Seminary in Indiana. Um, I graduated Westminster, California this spring, and we started Bobcast really right about the time the COVID pandemic was kicking off, just as something to occupy our time and uh, keep us busy. It was an idea we'd had before that, but basically... um, We've all through our seminary studies and other things come to develop a great appreciation for the theologian Herman Bovink. He was Dutch and uh, did his work in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and really one of the, the most influential reformed theologians of all time and just does a lot of great and helpful work. And so we decided it would be nice to start a show that where we dive into Bob Inc.'s theology and uh, see what there is in it that can help people today. And so it's been enjoyable. We've done a lot of look at like wonderful works of God, his shorter systematic theology. Um, we're doing a series right now on covenant theology um, using Bob Inc. and a lot of uh, similar and related theologians basically to build the case for covenant theology and like compare various systems and debates within that. And it's been really enjoyable and it's helped me to learn and grow as we've done it. And just really been a good opportunity for us. So much like our show, their show looks back at a theological movement in the past. (laughs) No, it's it's just the same. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, today we're going to have, we're happy to have Andrew and we're going to have him do something very different instead of studying some of the best of Reformed theology. We are going to react to the third episode of the rise and fall of Mars Hill. You read the Bible, Ringo. Bobbing would have said yes. He said yes to that question. (laughs) So, yes, he did. (laughs) (laughs) So, so Andrew, as we ask all of our guests, In case we do have a new listener, just so you know, our show predates this show and we are doing a postmortem on the YRR. And just to make it very clear, once again, uh, we did do the rise and the fall uh, before the rise and the fall of Mars Hill did it. And so uh, if we ever, you know, have to uh, come on the show to clear that up, uh, you know, feel free uh, to invite us, Mike Cosper. We are we are very willing to do that. And just to, you know, free it up for everybody else, just so that everybody knows that, you know, we are cool with you taking part of our tagline, uh, seeing that we get a little bit of the credit at some point. But the, the, we have found there is becoming an intense interest in litigating the YRR against, specifically Driscoll. And so because we are the longest running podcast doing that, we... <laughs> believe it's our duty to join in. And so we're going through it episode by episode. And I, Matt, the host, I am not listening ahead. You are getting my live takes. All I know is up to episode three. So often I get messages about things in the future, basketball coaches and whatever. And I don't know what you guys mean. (laughs) I can't wait to get there. It's great to meet time travelers, but we are here to serve. And today because we don't know if we'll have Andrew in the future. We want to ask, what's your overall understanding of the show? Um, How interested or not are you? Do you think it's helpful? So 
I guess the line I've come up with to describe this podcast is I don't know if it's the best podcast of this year, but I think it may be the most interesting Hmm. because I know it is for me. Like you had a, a few episodes ago, you had Peter Bell on and he was somebody who was actually inside Mars Hill and knew the people and stuff. I kind of represent the other element that was really affected by this and that I was somebody who admired and followed Driscoll and his ministry and Mars Hill from afar. You know, I was a young adult uh, just finishing up college and then having graduated college out in Wyoming. And Driscoll had a lot of impact on my life and a lot of impact in turning me towards Reformed theology. So now we're talking you know, roughly 10 years later, kind of going back and reliving all of that and realizing, okay, maybe it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be at the time. Uh, because, it, I mean, it was like very difficult and painful, like when Driscoll sort of fell and uh, when the scandal came out, everything it was almost like losing a, a friend or a family member because like my friends and I were, we were so like wrapped up in his teaching and stuff, but I'm thankful as I hear it, especially for God's grace and, you know, helping me to arrive on more stable ground theologically and in confessional reform theology. And, uh, that, you know, all of us who were influenced by Driscoll can learn from it because I know a lot of guys that like were influenced positively that ended up in the ministry uh, serving in in good churches and and doing good work for the gospel that Driscoll the wasn't the podcast de- <laughs> yeah like Driscoll wasn't the destination but he was a, an important stop along the way but also yeah. recognizing like yeah there was some pretty messed up stuff going on back there too totally I think all, likely that means all three of us were influenced in that direction yep. mm-hmm. yeah absolutely Well, that brings us to episode three of the rise and fall of Mars Hill. This is an episode kind of about the early years of Mars Hill and Driscoll's separation, we'll say, over time with the emergent church, which early on he was pretty strongly associated with. Do either of you want to kind of run through what the emergent movement was or what it attempted to be in evangelicalism? Man, so, I mean, the emergent church was kind of a mess, right? So, and that was part of it. It was, uh, you know, very uh, postmodern in a sense um, in that it was often like to put the best possible spin. There were a bunch of people who were, uh, you know, looking to reach a generation, a new generation of the church uh, or a new generation of the country uh, uh, with the church. And in order to do that, they felt that they had to, um, you know, change things um, in, in various different ways. So this is what's interesting about the emergent movement is that on like some spectrums you had what, you know, maybe would end up looking not unlike uh, just super lame pop evangelical, but with just even more watered down doctrine. Uh, but then on other hands, you have some who thought, hey, we need to get much more deep into like liturgical elements. So I went to an emergent church once, um, you know, back in the day and it was super weird. Uh, and they, uh, everybody sat in a circle, which is not, you know, that's not necessarily, I, you know, Bible doesn't say you can't sit in a circle for church, but everybody sat in a big circle. They're just, you know, uh, and in the middle, there was a table and it was just covered in all of these like icons. And this is basically like a, you know, they would have not an, it, it wasn't, evangelical but you know like they were coming out of evangelicalism right so this is not like hey we're you know roman catholic or we are eastern orthodox or we're lutheran or something like that where you might expect to see you know certain images or things like that around uh no like they but they were trying to like do that because they thought that this was like a cool you know thing to uh maybe add some transcendence or something to what we're doing uh but they had they had all of these images including an image of this old man that I think was supposed to be God, the father. Mm. Uh, and so that was uh, pretty rough. And uh, they, they had uh, preaching would happen from the side. And it was, uh, it was, it was just a weird experience uh, overall, but it was clear that they were trying to tap into uh, what they felt was like a missing transcendence 
in in the church, um, while at the same time trying to water down what the Bible teaches about most things. <laughs> so, Andrew, do you have any yeah anything else to add about the emergent movement? Well, it is kind of interesting that Driscoll was often connected with the emergent movement. Cause like I said, I kind of followed and admired him from afar, but I was in Wyoming, which is very rural and very conservative. And it's almost like the emergent movement didn't really happen there. Or if it did, it didn't come until later. Mm. Um, You know, this movement that was very much geared towards like cities and places of high culture and that kind of stuff. We didn't see a lot of that. I mean, it yeah. it, it would, after the fact, kind of start to creep in. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting to hear about it because uh, it seems to have influenced a lot of where we're at now in the yeah. country and in the yeah, world. Yeah, it was very, I mean, it was very pluralistic. Um, it was very uh, much, uh, you know, like it often people are, you know, moving in the directions of universalism in in various capacities. And a lot of it was having to deal with the fact that like America was uh, quickly becoming or had already become for decades, a post-Christian nation. Uh, And there were still people that wanted some elements of this church thing or this God thing. Um, But they wanted to distance themselves from any of the stronger statements of scripture. Um, The more, you know, uh, the, the parts of scripture that would say, yeah, I can't, you know, uh, say that every other religion has this, you know, good solid core in it. Uh, They wanted to be able to have a, hey, let's all get along. Let's all get together. We're in these cities. It's very like, you know, very multicultural, very pluralistic. We need something that fits, you know, a faith that fits with this new cultural trend. I I would say if I were to give my kind of one sentence understanding, it was an attempt to practice Christianity after postmodernism. Yeah. To accept the postmodern critique of what they would call traditional religious systems and truth in general and truth in general, and then say, and for Gen Z and future generations, we need to have a faith that we want connection to the past because aesthetically postmodernism actually likes that while inside we kind of do what we want. And so I think that is a pretty important context when you hear early Driscoll, which you get through this episode. And so We're going to start reacting to some clips, but as I always do, I want to remind our listeners, you need to listen to things like this, especially when it's of matters of faith with a discerning ear. And so always be asking, you should do this with all media, but especially with things put out by Christianity today, you need to be asking, (laughs) what is the message of of what they're saying? And and then uh, Michael and Andrew, you guys can tell me how close you think I am, because I actually think this episode... Um, they were less clear. I think the first two episodes, they kind of made it very clear. Here's what we mean. Here's what our point is. But I think this one was less clear. And so you guys might have a kind of different take. I think the message of the episode, I'd state it this way. The early success of Mars Hill reaching Gen Z exemplified the power of Driscoll's ministry in church planning. And while his turn from the emergent movement was taken as a win for conservative evangelicals, it actually may have been a sign for what Driscoll was willing to do for success in the future. It's kind of a long one because I thought, I thought it was kind of difficult, but what do you guys think about that as kind of the maybe potential message here of this episode? Yeah, I think that's probably right. Except it wouldn't be Gen Z, would it? It would be. He uh, was Gen Z. Really? Gen X. Oh, Gen X. You're, yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. Gen X. You guys okay, are right. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, he was He was Gen X. I screwed up the thing. I <laughs> you, wrote. You screwed up the main point. <laughs> I know. Oh, man. Now, now Mike Cosper will never bring us on the show. Yeah, that mistake was unforgettable. <laughs> but, but otherwise, yeah, I, I think you're on point. Yep. It was, it, it really kind of just leaves the question open as to, you know, who's the, who's in the right, who's in the wrong here. Like, is is the emergent movement good? Did it need Driscoll? Did Driscoll need it? it, it it's kind of just this this uh this pool of ambiguity going on in this episode yeah and and we'll come back to that because i think it's i think that's a concerning way to leave this you know this yeah topic but but let's start as we usually do by hearing from driscoll let's hear what he thought about uh starting a church kind of in this time 
I wasn't licensed or ordained. I'd actually never been a pastor of a church or a member in a church, so it seemed like a good idea to start my own. Um, and so I was 25 years of age at the time. My wife was pregnant with our first child, and uh, we started with a small group of uh, indie rockers committed to anarchy and poverty, and uh, they didn't make a great core group. They didn't organize or give well, much to my surprise. So I'll stop it there. I would ask you guys... Was that a good idea? <laughs> but but I'm talking to two reformed, ordained, ordained guys. So obviously the answer is not. Maybe a more interesting answer is why did that seem like a good idea? Like I found that attractive personally when I heard him tell this kind of story. Seriously, yeah, that seemed like a plus uh, when I was a young impressionable man. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, that's a good, that's a good thought. Um, it does seem that, uh, like the idea of, of spontaneity of Mm. like being able to just, you know, go, uh, by sheer like charisma, be able to accomplish something or do something without the backing of another, without the, like, you know, it's, it's kind of like this idea of like a scrappy, it's almost like an underdog story, right? Like, Hey, I'm not this like well-trained pastor guy. I'm not well-connected. Uh, but I like we like this was all just a mess. And now look at us. We're, you know, we're we're uh, at this huge number of people and doing all this stuff. Yeah, I think part of the appeal is the I mean, it's, in one sense, it's very difficult. But in another way, it's the simplicity of being able to start something. And, you know, there's already kind of this attitude of like rebellion against the existing church and existing structures and it's easier to just like kind of go around that and avoid that than try to work through and change them. Because if you're operating from this idea that, you know, the church is somehow out of touch and, and no longer relevant and no longer reaching people, then you can see the appeal of just like skipping that all together and, and starting new with like this entrepreneurial approach. I mean, I know I kind of felt it back then. I realize now, you know, a lot of these systems and processes are actually here to protect us. But as a, a younger, more optimistic, perhaps person, I could see the appeal. Yeah, it's interesting that it's it's almost played off as like, yeah, like we did it the hard way, right? Like we did it the hard way by like just doing it all ourselves and coming up with it ourselves and, and just starting from scratch where that's actually the easy way, like not, not easy in the sense that like it's, you know, long-term actually a good idea or that like you don't th- go through something that's difficult, But it's way harder to get along with others, to have to submit yourself to others, to have to like go through uh, processes that you don't always like or enjoy in order to be, you know, in a place where you are, you are commended for this kind of work. It's much easier to just say, hey, I'm just going to go do it, Uh, you know, where I don't have to be, you know, under the authority of others. So I don't know. I don't know what that's worth, but something I thought while listening. I totally think you both are right that. We have this kind of value of like, right? It, 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 especially in the kind of Gen X, as as you were saying, Andrew, the stick it to the man, the spontaneity. Even in our last episode where we talked about what regulates our worship, the sincerity of the worshiper, right? That so when you can say, "I put it all out there," that seems to value it. But I do think, as I've grown older, as both of you have, again, I found this very attractive. But and and we may need to do something on the doctrine of ordination eventually just about what that means and why that's maybe more important than we have given it thought than it was given thought in the YRR. But let me give you just one tiny example to prove the point that because I love you listener, I'm telling you this. Um, I've just become familiar with some of the things that pastor Michael in his denomination had to study for ordination. And I'll just give you one section on marriage and divorce that he had to study that he had to study the issues of when you could be divorced, remarriage after the fact. Let me just say, if you are in a situation in your life where those things are, are an issue you're facing, do you want a pastor who just said, I took my kid and we went out and we started something or someone who has in the church with the wisdom of the church studied this issue about how to advise Christians? I, I can't imagine just, you know, desiring I desiring this while I really wanted to do it. And by my own bootstraps, I got it done because when life really hits, this is when those kinds of things are important. And that's, 
obviously what you meant, Andrew, when you said this, we have these things to protect ourselves. Yeah. You wouldn't want a doctor who's like, yeah, I did this myself. <laughs> like <laughs> I just, I just decided to like go out and just do it. I, I didn't think it was that hard. Come on. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm skilled enough and like making jokes about it. It's like, wait a minute. I don't, I don't know how I feel about you, uh, you know, uh, giving me a heart transplant right now. When you learned it on YouTube. <laughs> right. Well, I want to play one clip from a person who was apparently part of his core group and what was appealing about what he was telling people in the early days. I guess what appealed to me initially, he was he was a young guy who had some really clear and definitive ideas about what church and marriage and manhood and womanhood and I mean, he, ha- he really had kind of an answer or a template for whatever you would ask him about, um, very self-assured and confident. So for me to see a man who was being really clear and vocal and specific about what it looked like to love God, love your family, be a man, be a woman, that appealed to me deeply. That's what she found appealing. Is that what you guys found appealing? And is that something maybe we should learn from as we, yeah, go out and do ministry today? This is totally the case. So that, I mean, the reason that uh, so many particularly young men uh, flock to a guy like Driscoll is because uh, being in a, a time and place where something like the emergent church was taking off and the emergent church by and large was a place that said, hey, come on here and we'll ask questions together. And that's it. Like, we, like, that's what we'll do. We'll ask questions. We'll never get answers. We'll never have like a decisive yes or no, because it was, it was very much uh, tied into postmodernism and, and the idea of their, you know, kind of this post-truth era uh, to have somebody who is confident, decisive says, yeah, whatever you come to them, they say, yeah, well, here's the answer. Um, whether or not those answers were always good or biblical is, is, you know, kind of beside the point right now, the very fact that somebody was doing that was very uh, attractive and was very, um, you know, compelling even. Um, I remember talking to uh, someone not all that long ago who went to a seminary uh, and uh, it's a seminary that, you know, is maybe a bit more uh, on a progressive spectrum. And they were talking to me and they said, you know, I went to seminary thinking that I would learn answers to things, that there are all these debates in Christianity about what is and what isn't true and, and the different views on these various issues and many of the ones that, you know, this woman just mentioned. And I left seminary realizing that there is no for sure answer on most of these things. And I obviously was like, well, no, that's not true. <laughs> that's like, that's super sad uh, that that's the case for you. But like that, that is the world that we're in. Um, or, or have been in, I think things are maybe changing a little bit. Uh, but, uh, but that, that was kind of the milieu that Driscoll rises in. Yeah, I would agree. I, I, I think it's that directness and that certainty that Driscoll presented was very appealing. Like I said, for me as a young man coming out of college and coming into the world and it's a big, scary place and I, I need answers. And here's a guy who, who seems to have them. Yeah. I want to wonder, is there a sense where maybe the danger is? Because I think in our day where there are no answers, giving clear, direct truth is attractive. But is there a danger in giving maybe certainty you can't promise in like, here's what your family's supposed to be like. Here's what men are supposed to be like. And that might come up later in this show, probably because they don't probably want clear answers, but I've just wondered for those of us who do hold to, there is clear truth. Men and women are made in certain ways. We are to act this way in the church. Can we overpromise? Is that a danger? Oh, totally. And, and that is probably a very natural thing that we should expect in reaction to mm. the saying there is no answer to things is that somebody would overreact and say, well, actually, I've got an answer personally for you on every little detail, mm. even those things that the scripture is actually not clear on. And so that's that's the danger, I think, in that, is that you would go beyond what scripture says. Scripture is very clear on a lot of things. 
it is not clear on everything. Um, it does not give even, you know, like there are many uh, specifics of, you know, say when you're talking about a marriage, when you're talking about, you know, uh, marriage and divorce, when you're talking about, uh, you know, raising kids, when you're talking about how many kids should you have? There, there are lots of things that the Bible doesn't outright say, right? That there, there takes a certain amount of just biblical wisdom of understanding the scripture and then being able to apply it properly um, that takes time and, and you know, uh, help of tradition and, and those who are wiser who have, you know, uh, gone before us. And, and there's so much like detail involved in some of those things. Um, while at the same time, so, you know, again, you see where the, the good is in, hey, there are things that I can be confident in and just say are true because the Bible says it, like the Bible says uh, these things very clearly. On the other hand, when you start branching that same confidence into things that the Bible is not clear on, that's where you definitely run afoul. Well, and it also, it really sets up an opportunity to do harm to people if you yes. like set up a particular ideal vision of you know even things like marriage and family and so forth well what about for the people for which that is or for whatever reason cannot be true then you sort of create a situation where you have these people that believe that well i guess i don't believe enough i don't have sufficient faith or something's wrong with me that's why i don't have this or why this doesn't work for me when in reality it's just the lines aren't being drawn in the proper biblical places on these issues perhaps yeah, yeah there are a lot of dangers and so we're not going to play cl clips but the first half of this podcast i found personally moving just listening to people being connected to Christ, you know, and all these things, seeing Driscoll do some, you know, giga Chad pastor moves of like having people stay with him who are in grief. And I, I immediately could say what would be attractive early on to people. We'll go to the shift in the episode. And I think this is something that as we continue to talk about what was attractive, they describe the time where he makes a shift towards Calvinism. And I think to all three of us, that was a pretty big feature. So let's listen to some people describe Driscoll's shift towards Calvinism before we come to the creme de la creme of clips to react to. He changed. He locked into a theological perspective that caused a great riff in our friendship and our relationship. And I mean, it, it, it was fundamentally a theological break that came along with a relational break because just the way he treated people in who disagreed with him theologically. <laughs> you know, Rick McKinley and Mark had been particularly close and like-minded, and they'd go on to help lead Acts 29 together in the years ahead. Rick also remembers this specific moment where Mark made a pivot. There was a, a moment where he went away for the summer to figure out his theology and kind of these things. And he came back feeling like I'm reformed, I'm this and that. And that's when I would say the window shut into his heart. Tony Jones remembers this. Trend. Sorry, just one second. Just, you know, when you guys became reformed, the window, the window shut, shut to your heart. <laughs> just so you know. Yeah, we'll, you see how they're portraying wow. this. We'll keep going. Transition two. We did a series of regional events. And I think I went to the ones in Denver and Minneapolis. And there was one in Seattle. There was one in Texas. But the one in Seattle, there was like a closing panel discussion Driscoll said in an offhanded way something like, well, I mean, none of this really matters because God made some of you to be matchsticks anyways. Like he, he, he articulated this very conservative Calvinistic, the elect versus the damned theology, which, you know, you talk to people who are on stage with him, people like Brad Cecil and Doug Padgett, and they were stunned. That was really the beginning. That was the beginning of the end. And, you know, it really frayed the relationship between Driscoll and a lot of the other leaders in the emergent movement. Mark's move here, creating this distance, happens to coincide with the gathering steam around the new Calvinism, also known as the Young Restless Reformed Movement. 
Over the next decade, he would become one of the leading voices of that movement. His preaching and writing were deeply shaped by Reformed theology. And his book Doctrine, a 465-page tome co-written with Gary Brashears, is a straightforward, systematic framework of Reformed theology. Given the investment he made here and the impact it had in shaping the thoughts of Mars Hill members and Christians around the globe who read his books and downloaded his sermons, it seems cynical to suggest that anything about this shift might be about opportunity. And yet, since leaving Mars Hill, he's rejected Reformed theology. In an interview with a pastor named Matt Brown on The Debrief Show, he said the whole young, restless Reformed movement is made up of little boys with father wounds. He also said he doesn't hold to the five points of Calvinism. I think they're garbage, he said. We may go do that clip someday, because when it happened, I was shocked. I know all of our TR listeners just about puked when they heard Driscoll's book as the like a systematic and straightforward <laughs> exposition Driscoll, of reform yeah. theology. I know, I know it's what uh, Herman Bovink look up was hoping to achieve in his, uh, his ministry and scholarship. Oh my goodness. Right. Yeah. But here's the thing. So the question they're asking is why does he shift? Why does he shift towards Calvinism? And I have my thoughts that I actually think maybe aren't as cynical as you wouldn't want to be cynical, but we're going to be really cynical. Is that really the question, though? Or is the question, why did he become a big meanie? And it was because of Calvinism. Well, I, that's, that's a, what it that's like. a, interesting. Andrew, what do you think? Well, for one thing, it stands out to me. It doesn't really get addressed here, but. How is someone who's already like midstream in the ministry making such major theological shifts and like that's just okay and sort of goes on unchecked? <laughs> well, great, great point. He's who's gonna check him, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I, did no. this did this by myself, you know, like right. Because my read, and then you guys can interact more because Michael's might even be more interesting than mine is. I don't think it was just a, I hopped on board Calvinism because it was popular. I think a guy attracted to certainty who was untrained and untried is learning on the fly and eventually kind of where, oh, look, there's a bunch of these certain people and he and they're Calvinists. And so he hops on board of that and then drives it. And then, I mean, admittedly, he said this to people who I would consider unbelievers, right? He's not representing he represented this conservative form of Calvinism. No, he did not when he called you all matchsticks. He's, he's not representing yeah. well, but I'm just, I would be lying if I didn't say that Mark Driscoll in a room full of like emergent church universalist <laughs> types who are, you know, claiming the name of Christ and teaching a bunch of very false doctrine, calling a bunch of them matchsticks is a little funny. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and we're going to get to the, the true joy of listening to that happen in a minute, but Pastor Michael, tell us kind of what you were saying about what you thought might be one of the messages coming. Yeah, up. well, and this isn't about like Driscoll and his actual like change, you know, so like what you said about his change makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this, this, this does make sense of what they say on the podcast that this doesn't seem like it was done out of a desire to like, you know, uh, be at the head of this new movement. Um, it was, I mean, you're just on the cusp right now, you know, and, and Driscoll really helps it to be what it became in a lot of ways. And so, so it, you know, it, it does seem like he had a change of conviction for whatever reason, whatever he was reading, the kinds of people influencing him and, and change. What I'm thinking about is more this podcast itself. So what is the narrative behind uh, what, what Cosper and Christianity Today are doing? They spend all this time talking about how wonderful Mark Driscoll is early on. Mm. He lets people into his home. He's, he's kind to them. He's, you know, he's loving and caring. He's a good, great pastor. In other words, he loves people what changed? What changed is he became a Calvinist. Like, that's what they're saying. They're, they're saying, and specific, like he became reformed and that's what made him a big meanie. And so that's what I'm saying. I, I think that's kind of the, the narrative of the podcast itself. Hmm. Yeah. Which is interesting. Like what, a, what does Cosper mean when he actually says reformed? Like, I, oh, yeah. you know, he talks <laughs> about the five points and that, but like when they talk about this part about where he's saying that they're matchsticks, like what comes to mind for me is like Westminster confession three, eight and the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care, which 
I think a lot of us, when we first come to know Calvinism, we go through that dreaded cage stage where we don't handle it with that care. And maybe Driscoll was kind of going through his own form of that. He's in his cage stage and like with Driscoll, because this guy is an extreme guy. Like it's going to be an extreme cage stage, you know? Right. So yeah, it's just like how reformed is reformed and how much did that really have to do with what was going on? Was it really the catalyst or to, to Driscoll becoming now this more, uh, I don't know the best descriptor, but I guess kind of painted as this monster of sorts that emerges after. Yeah. I think, man, I just love what Andrew just taught me that the cage stage violates the main reformed confession. <laughs> like, I just love that. That was so fascinating. It does, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think that what we're looking at is, yeah, what you guys are talking about. But what we're going to listen to now is we're going to listen to Driscoll at a emergent conference where he was putting on, and apparently this is where Mike Cosper first ran into him. And I wish Cosper would have told us a little more about what, what did he think when he saw this? He doesn't yeah, say he that. Doesn't and say. I wish he would have. Well, I mean, he ended up in a lot of the same circles as Driscoll. So I have to think that when he saw it, he liked it, but I don't know. But he was also at this like weird emergent conference. So who knows? And we'll, we're, I'm keeping in Cosper's commentary between these clips because it doesn't sound like he likes it so much anymore. And so Driscoll is at this highly ecumenical emergent conference and he gives a breakout called The Gospel. And we'll listen to a clip about where where he says um, why he's doing this breakout and and how this breakout progresses. And we're all going to watch. And the word monster that Andrew used earlier is perfect because I know we have listeners who are going to have varying. Driscoll was always a bad guy or he was helpful to me. And then, you know, things went wrong at the very least, friends. I want you to this is at least enjoy this on the level of watching a Godzilla movie. You are always rooting for Godzilla to take down the other monster. And so we'll uh, we'll talk about how well this goes or how well it doesn't go. Will a whole city get destroyed? Maybe, <laughs> maybe, but we can watch and have fun later. But so this is from Driscoll's breakout session at an emergent conference. I think the place that we're at right now is that the, the gospel is a diamond and that the, you know, the spirit of the age is just a dunghill. And as that diamond rolls down a hill, after a while, you get more dung than diamond. And then Reformation is the place of chipping away and getting back to uh, what originally was worthwhile, that first poetic image, rather than all the man-made images that we've layered on top of that. The thing that I am seeing today that really concerns me is a, a strong lack of uh, conversation about God. Uh, God is not the theme of the day. Uh, the Sky Fairy is. We, we have God Bless America, and, and we have uh, all of this conversation about this unknown god uh, and he's the sky fairy or she's the sky fairy and it's just like this cosmic pinata that we all gather around and toss prayers to hoping that we'll whack it and goodies will fall out and uh, my fear for many of you is this and i could be a total about this i probably will before i'm done but uh, i'm really concerned sincerely about a neoliberalism that just comes in and takes a philosophical concept and then elevates that as a new gospel uh, because uh, the scripture is clear that Galatians says that if anybody comes proclaiming another gospel, tell them to go to hell. As you can probably tell already, he's in a pretty different place than he was when he gave the talk you heard on the previous episode from 1997. His posture towards the world is much more us versus them, and pretty much all of the talk about the need for artists, mystics, and philosophers is gone. Even the talk about postmodernity is mostly tossed aside as a distraction navel-gazing that gets in the way of the church's mission. But as the talk went on, he got more and more aggressive. All right, we'll stop it there. So first up, is Driscoll right in the, in the conference he was in to say the concerns he had? Of course. <laughs> of course he's right. Yeah. Like I'm, This is the one where you're listening to it and you're like, man, this is why I liked Driscoll. Right. <laughs> this mm-hmm. is why I liked this guy. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what he's saying is on point. I mean, you can maybe question the delivery, some the intemperate language, mm-hmm. and the and the just kind of 
dismissive approach to all of it. But at the same time, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of truth in what he's saying here about the spirit of the age and where the world and the church seems to be going. Yeah. And I think that we, we have voiced concerns about his presence in the pulpit and things. I'm less concerned here. I do agree that again, still, if you're getting bleeped on a podcast, you're, you know, you're not, <laughs> maybe that shouldn't be a Christian conference material, but he's not in the pulpit. So I have a, I have a, you know, I, I, I'm okay with it being more casual, but man, the thing that blows my mind when I hear this is then Cosper comes on and goes, listen to the shift from we, and we played the clip where he talked about the, the state of, we need these, we don't have Christian art. We're not, the church isn't attractive to any of these people. If you had asked me immediately after, if you play those clips back to back without it and said, these are two things, are these different things? I would have said, no, no. I would have just said, one is him saying like, what the church needs to focus on reaching these people. The gospel has things to say to them. And this clip is him saying, yeah, so actually we need to make sure our focus is on God. Yeah. And it's weird. It's, it's, I think, I mean, it sounds like you're trying to construct a narrative where you are just like really forcing it upon what happened because uh, I, I felt the same way in listening to this, that I don't see any contradiction. In fact, we know that Driscoll at the same time, he's like saying these things is like top of the line in his church when it comes to the arts and when it comes to production and when it comes to all of these things. And so the idea that this was like, this is what was different. You know, he was, he was the nice guy again, you know, he was the nice guy who like cared for people and liked the arts and was like really interested in culture and shaping a city. But now he's the mean guy that believes in the gospel. <laughs> you know, like, I know that like, that's probably not uh, exactly what they're trying to go with, but that's the narrative that's really being pushed. It sounds like. Well, let's, let's hear him get more aggressive. And the air got thick and tense. People eventually stopped laughing, especially as the conversation turned towards gender and sexuality. Most postmodern philosophers are gay men. So you wonder why if we swim in their stream, we end up wearing pink and singing love songs to God, which is not advantageous when you're at war. Uh, there's a reason why in every nation of the world, in every theology, more women... Sorry, I'll give Michael a moment just, to compose yeah. himself. Tough but fair. This is just—it's hilarious that yeah. he's in the setting that he's in, saying these things. Like this is this is what I liked about the guy. Oh man, Andrew, well, you. Wanna... Well, you're also you're kind of starting to see Cosper tip his hand a little bit because he it's the ominous. Oh, we're getting into issues of gender and sexuality, which comes up yeah. again and again throughout this podcast. Yep. You know, everybody wants to talk about the gospel until we get to the parts where the gospel actually finds itself at odds with the, the spirit of the age and the culture of our time. And, and suddenly, oh, we now we've got problems. It's just interesting to see that shift even in the reporting. Yeah, I, I think it is so telling that the story of this breakout is when people really lost it was on gender and sexuality. Maybe that was the case, but that's the story we need to tell for for now, as you're saying, Andrew. So we'll we'll go back in now. That I'll try. I'll try to. I'll try to keep my laughter to a minimum. <laughs> and then men come to church. Your biggest problem is getting your men to give a shit. If you don't give them a biblical masculinity, they will go adopt a chauvinism. They'll drink beer, nail women, pick fights, and they're not going to come to your church where you got some you know, will and grace worship leader, and you've got a bunch of love songs to some sky fairy. Eventually, he starts speaking even more directly with hostility towards the conference itself. What do you mean? So, again... He's not wrong. <laughs> he's, yeah, I think, Andrew, I was like, yeah, no, I, th I think this probably, this language was in line. I just didn't let the clip go far enough. You're, you're, I, I needed to let that go about... <laughs> A minute longer yes. before I yeah. kind of stuck up for it this time. <laughs> right. but. Yeah, no, I, I mean, again, though, it's not like what he's saying isn't true. It's not the best way to say it. But I mean, he's got a point. I mean, and this is the stuff that, that drew a lot of people like me to Driscoll back in the day was he was clear about this stuff. He wasn't messing around with it where so much of the world seemed to be. Yeah. We're going to play the next clips and where he's actually getting arguments back 
is is what's actually shocking and it's not on gender mm-hmm. and sold just be honest guys let's take the fig leaf off i'll be the one flying the ointment this week that's fine it's not because i hate you it's because i love you it's because i've done everything they're telling you to do and i woke up and i didn't have a pure heart a clean conscience or a sincere faith and i had to repent to god trying to be cool rather than faithful almost an hour in people in the audience start talking back to him pushing back and arguing And I think part of what you hear in the midst of ugly slurs and stereotypes from Mark, the worst of which, frankly, I'm not putting in here, is his own sense that he's gotten something really wrong and that the pendulum is now swinging hard in the other direction. I'm in a place of deep and profound conviction now about the power of the gospel in my own foolishness and the inability of the church or gender or psychology or self-help or entertainment to do anything that the gospel can do. You know what? That, that's a totally dualist view of how God works. Doesn't God also reveal through all other aspects, not just within the scripture? But not salvifically. What? There is general revelation. If I look at that tree, I will not rise from my death at the end of the age. I need Christ crucified, died, raised. And, and, and God will reveal Christ crucified in other things too. So people get saved by looking at creation? A fundamentalist view of scripture. And it's not... There is no other name under which a man may be saved but Christ. You're, well, you're telling... You're a universalist. You're arguing that there is... You are a universalist. You are a universalist. Okay. Then we have huge freaking issues with you. Of course we do. Because... So I want to stop it there. Uh, Because we've played quite a bit. But again, I would say his language is more restrained. And and where is the like guy showing up to argue? I'm a universalist. Yeah, think of where he is like that. I mean, he is he is in a, a place literally surrounded by unbelievers who are claiming the name of Christ and claiming like claiming to be teachers. Right. Teachers who are preaching literally a false gospel. Uh, And what he is saying here is exactly right. I like, you know, like as much as yeah, like he he verges into like a lot of these like, you know, jokes and things that maybe cross the line and all of that. At the same time, when I hear some of his like like his language, like when he said, like looking at a tree, like I like that will not raise me at uh, the, uh, end of time. And that like, that's a, that's a powerful statement, especially when you're speaking to a room of probably quite a few universalist types, you know, like that's a, that's an important statement. So, so I love it. I mean, I love hearing it. I don't know what this like really bad slur was or whatever that Cosper is talking about. So I'm not going to like, you know, uh, say that that's a good thing, uh, because obviously he didn't include it for a reason. Um, I will say like, just simply, uh, Mark making like the jokes that he did as like these, he makes it sound like they're these like unbelievably hyper offensive things. And yeah, like they're a little off color. They're not like, you know, like, would I say these things? No, but like to make it sound again, like, it just seems like there's this narrative of like, this is so bad and it's so ugly and it's so divisive and it just keeps getting worse. And again, I don't know the full context. You know, I, don't, I haven't listened to this entire session, this entire breakout session. Maybe it's far worse than I think. Um, but it, like up to this point, it's like, wow, this like he actually is standing for the truth. Go Godzilla, go. Yeah, go Godzilla. Yeah. That's right. Andrew, what do you what do you think? Yeah, I mean, in that last clip, especially like he's saying the right things he's talking about. Yeah, you know, general revelation isn't going to save. And here's somebody who's who's rejecting the gospel as the way to salvation and driscoll is telling him that that right that he needs to repent and believe the gospel and i mean that's what we should say in a situation like that and that that you're following the narrative of this podcast and this this is supposedly the move from light to darkness it really makes me wonder where they're at and like where what they want the listener to take away from this again we're it's that ambiguity that what are they really trying to say here yeah i mean a a guy who is potentially going to come on this is like what was the solution stay emergent like what was the alternative you imagined right obviously you know if we're saying there's character you shouldn't be talking that way but when it's like but when he turned on the conference itself yeah, of course he yeah. should have. Well, yeah, he should. Mm-hmm. That's good. <laughs> that was the right. That move. was the one right thing, right? <laughs> if you shouldn't talk that way, if we shouldn't do those things, the one thing he should do is say, "I am under conviction. We don't know what we're doing. Yeah, we aren't talking about who's God." Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? As they are portraying it, 
Right. That tells you everything. You know, that tells you everything about what they're trying to do. Well, let's hear the end of Driscoll's uh, conference message here. I'm not a universalist. I'm a Christian. That's why I'm not at the ecumenical prayer services. I love them and I pray for their salvation, but I will not have an unknown God who's a sky fairy that I hold hands with everybody else and pretend that we're all going to usher into the kingdom together. I need Christ. The guy arguing with Mark eventually got up and walked out, as did a number of others. Mark continued his talk, though, and ended by taking some questions from the audience. Right at the very end of his time, someone else started up with him again, particularly frustrated about the way he treated the guy who walked out. I asked him real quick. I said, are universalists? He said, yes. I said, so you're, you know, I was confirming him defining himself. And even in a postmodern world, I get to name myself. Here's my final word. You know how we find the line? How do we find the line? We cross it. Then we know where it is. That's my value. My workshop, my value. (laughs) You guys have a good lunch. So a bit of a bizarre end, but what do you guys think about that? I think that, I mean, that is part of the problem actually, right? That like he, like, I, I think actually in some capacity, like this is how uh, Driscoll regularly tried to work things was you just go and do, and you find the line that way. Um, when this is what we, you know, we're talking about before when like this would actually be uh, more beneficial if there were certain things that going in, you know, the line you know, you're prepared for this. You're not just doing it by yourself, figuring out what the line is, uh, but you have others around you, a tradition of, you know, uh, some like actual confessional document, something that tells you, hey, here's actually where the line is. You don't have to cross it to know because others have done that before. You know, like this is, this is the benefit of having that behind you. Yeah. And I think maybe it also kind of helps to understand like where Driscoll's head is at in all of this, because it seems like this this talk, I mean, at least through the clips we get here, is this is him in his own mind coming to the realization that as it pertains to the emergent movement, that he is across the line and he needs to get back to safety and he needs to turn, you know, himself and turn these people with him like back to the gospel and real and and draw the lines in the proper place now. But yeah, it would be better, I mean, if he always knew where they were instead of oh, now I'm in this situation where I, where I shouldn't be. And now I'm under conviction for, for, for where I'm at and, and uh, how I've been doing this. Right. Just as you were talking about earlier, Andrew, is it a, a major, it should be a major thing if your pastor is coming to new theological conclusions, right? And this is the like, this is how things were done, right? I ran out, I saw, all right, I'm going to learn. And and that is an immature view of ministry with, we can call it anything else. But yeah, I think that is what he's trying to do. I think you're right. He's trying to call these people back. This is the line, you know, and we, I've crossed it and I'm trying to go back. But I think we'll go with one last clip before we kind of give our closing thoughts, because I do think we need to try and give, this is the clincher story. So we've had this kind of conference thing that I would think Christianity Today knows that they have a group of listeners like us that are actually kind of cheering. But we get a story at the end of a church member confronting him. And so we'll we'll play this clip, give some thoughts and and get everyone out of here. And then they asked what the most difficult thing was about working for Mark. My answer was was not about myself so much at all. It, I said, I think it's watching him and seeing that he needs more men around him to go toe-to-toe with him. He needs more men who will not say yes to him but really challenge him. She didn't think anything more about it, and a couple of days went by. Then she got a call from Jamie Munson, Mars Hill's executive pastor, asking her to come to a meeting with him and Mark. She knew something was up. So on a Thursday at two o'clock, she showed up at Jamie's office, unsure what to expect. Jamie's office was much smaller than Mark's, and we were 
almost knee to knee, all three of us. And there was this immediate sense of, for me anyway, intimidation. I could see that Mark was blazing mad. And I've never experienced in my life up to that point, that kind of rage emanating from anyone. And so I sat down and, um, and he said to me, do you know why you're here? And he said, you're being accused of heresy. And Mike, I, uh, I just lost all sense of, of myself other than this kind of sound uh, and almost feeling of rushing water through my body. I, I was just in shock. And I said, what, what? And he said, you're being accused of heresy because you've said that you don't trust the leadership in this church. And, and really, you're, you know, what you've said could destroy this church. Let's make sure our terms are clear. To be a heretic involves some key denial of the Christian faith. So in response to Karen suggesting that having a few older, wiser men around might be a good thing, she was accused not of insubordination or disrespect, but heresy. All I knew about heresy was was uh, wrapped up basically in the story of Joan of Arc. So I was like, Oh, I, I just couldn't wrap my mind around this, but I said, well, what I did say is that you need more men around you. Men like Mike Gunn to go toe to toe with you. It's worth pausing. We're going to stop the clip there, even though the clip goes on. She is let go from the position she had and, and believe she was shamed uh, from the pulpit. And so I, probably should say this is always the danger of us even commenting on this podcast is because Driscoll and Jamie Munson are always welcome on our show to talk with us. You too. Come on. Uh, yeah. Mark, we if we like do to, get, on, we only us. get a very one-sided story yes. about this. And now, but again, the reason I wanted to play that is because I want it to, you know, I want to give this, what we're reacting to, the fairness of saying, right, this is kind of showing this kind of two sides of it. Yeah, I think yeah. so. I mean, so if you just take it all uh, as if, yep, this is exactly as she says, this is how it went down, um, which almost definitely there's another side, right? I mean, it, it, there just always is, um, even if it's just perception of, okay, like I've never seen anyone this blazing mad or angry before. I've mm -hmm. never seen this much rage. That could be. Mark was clearly a guy with anger issues, right? I mean, he, he even admittedly so. I mean, he clearly had anger issues and he clearly had issues of like trust and like feeling like somebody's going to stab him in the back and all of that. And so if this was happening from somebody right on the inside and somebody that he was very close to in the church, you can imagine how that would happen, right? So it, it doesn't it doesn't like seem like, wow, this is coming out of left field. This would never happen. It seems like, okay, I mean, it at least makes sense. So let's just take it as if 100% this is exactly what she says. It's horrible. You know, like this is, mm -hmm. this is horrible. This is uh, an abuse of leadership and abuse of power um, in, in such a way uh, that such a small statement of what clearly seems to be obviously true would be, you know, uh, it would lead to this kind of like harsh reaction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, assuming it is, true because we don't know that for sure yeah to go it like immediately from from zero to we don't have a problem to a hundred of you're fired and you're a heretic um but also this shows like the importance of you know reformed is more than five points like we have like polity we have church order we have processes we have appeals to deal with issues or perceived issues like this and exactly just, again further the the downfalls the pitfalls of going it alone and and starting from nothing and not really knowing what you're doing because even if this situation is as presented here like there's there's better and there's right ways to take care of it yeah i i think you guys are right and we we obviously can only take this story at fairly face value. 
if you want the sign that there is at least some heavy editorializing going on in it is that the only person I'd ever heard of as a heretic was Joan of Arc. Well, <laughs> heresy is, you know, there, there have been heresies outside of that. And, and I do think it's important to note, I obviously have no idea what they're talking about. Where do we get the verse? Where do we get the word heretic? It's a Greek word from Titus 3.10, used one time in the Bible. It's as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing to do with them. And so the actual historical context of where we get the word heretic is the church believed people introducing false doctrines to the essentials of the Christian faith were dividing the church because they were causing it. And obviously I'm not saying that they had any case that this woman qualified for a heretic in this way. But I am saying that the lack of clarity with which we're talking about heresy, which is kind of a bad word in our day, is kind of what gave me like a, uh, I think there's going to be some other part of this story. So you see here, I mean, I guess if we just look over the whole of this, right, you see two things, uh, maybe three things that are all like, they can be true at the same time. So this is something mm-hmm. that we've talked about before. Um, several things can be true at once. Driscoll um, did a lot of really horrible things that shouldn't have been done. Um, he said things that shouldn't have been said. He uh, did abuse the authority that he had. Um, he was maybe given authority before he should have had it. So that, like, there are issues there. Um, at the same time, he did many good things. He did many righteous things that uh, you know were a, a blessing to us and many others. Um, so it, like those things happened to correspond. I mean, they like they were not corresponding that they you know were linked to each other, but they happened to come from the same man, the same ministry, um, and this. Uh, you know, podcast that we are reacting to is uh, both showing, uh, showing both of those things. Yet it's, you know, trying to, uh, you know, figure out the line of, hey, what do we put on which side? Like, what do we, you know, what is, is some of the good and what is some of the bad? If this is supposed to be both about like the, you know, grace of God working in broken places, which part is broken? Which part is the grace of God? Which part is, you know, like, we're, we're trying to define these things. And clearly the narrative that's being pushed by the podcast itself at this point is one that is that uh, certain aspects of Driscoll's theology and uh, other things that we wouldn't necessarily put on this side of the line, we're on the side of the line that this is negative, this is bad, this is what caused him to go this direction. Uh, where we would place that line a little bit different and say, no, like, you know, the fact that he was becoming a Calvinist was not bad. Maybe his intemperate speech and misunderstanding of these things, uh, but not the, the actual, you know, doctrine itself and, and so on and so forth. We could, you know, we could go on, but we're definitely placing lines in different places. Right. What do you think, Andrew, as we get ready to close out this issue? Yeah, I mean, I think it just is a, a caution to those who are, are listening to the podcast uh, to listen cautiously and judiciously because there there is an attempt here, yeah, to to link his his abusive behavior and such with like his his Calvinistic theology. And that's just one of those cases where correlation does not equal causation mm-hmm. and people need to be aware. Um yeah, Driscoll did a lot of bad things, um, but that doesn't mean that this story is being necessarily presented here in a, uh, I guess, neutral way. Uh, they've they've got somewhere they're trying to go with it, also. Right, and I think Andrew, that is the perfect place to leave it because as I came to the end of this episode, I felt this felt like a kind of low blow like it felt like just come out and tell me right this ambiguity tell me what you want at least do me the kindness of saying if you thought emergent was good or if you thought this was just a character but this kind of pretense did not sit well with me and I think the other thing is is I was in a room listening to people discuss this podcast and and 
what influence it should have on church matters. And, and I was being the meme of just sitting there. These people don't even know I've got a podcast <laughs> talking about this podcast. But the but listening, it made me realize that the conclusions that this podcast are leaving us to are like, well, that's the self-evident lesson that was here. And I do think for that reason, I think we do need the discerning ear. We need to be considering these things. We need to be considering this as a package of entertainment. The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, episode three in the books. We did it. We came. We saw. Thank you, Andrew, for joining us. Hey, Restless is getting ready to celebrate its one year of existence. We have been podcasting for one year. And here's what we need. We need your help. We need your feedback. We need your questions. And we need your submissions for yay, nay, or nuance. We want to we get sent the best tweets or TGC articles that you want us to decide if we agree with, disagree with, or have to nuance. So get ready. It's going to be fun. And we will be back next week with more Restless.